Well, as always, it's my joy to invite you again to open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. As you turn there, I'd like you to consider this question. What comes to your mind when you think of the word satisfaction? Maybe you think of coming home from a long day of hard work and kicking off your shoes and sinking into the couch. Or maybe you think of what it's like to be in in the yard working on one of these hot Texas summer days, overheated, sweaty, longing for a cold glass of water. And you walk into the house and feel that first gust of cold AC, slowly drink that first long drink of ice cold water. Certainly those are forms of satisfaction. But what if I pose the question to us this morning in a little bit more of an abstract sense? What does it mean for justice to be satisfied? A lot of families have thought through this question as they've sat sadly in courtrooms, having lost a family member to the sin or evil of another human being, longing for justice. And what they find is that even when the court case is decided, and even if it's decided in their favor and the sentence is handed out, they have this strange mix of emotions of both relief and remorse. Because on the one hand, they're thankful for some justice to have been accomplished, and yet inside they still don't feel fully satisfied. But if that's how it is with matters of human justice, then how are we ever to understand matters of divine justice? If we can't fully satisfy our need or desire for human justice at a human level, how can we ever hope to truly satisfy the divine justice of God over sin? The Bible tells us that what with man is impossible is possible with God alone. And what we're going to see in our text this morning is that God has reached down from heaven to help us. He he has bent down through the person of his son to rescue us, and he himself has provided the satisfaction needed for his own just wrath. And so while we in and of ourselves are indeed helpless this morning, we are not hopeless, as the author of Hebrews will tell us. If you've been with us, you know well the theme of Hebrews, the superiority of Christ. And we've been looking for several weeks now at the fact that Jesus, as God's divine son, is undeniably superior to the angels. We have those nine proofs of that fact. Today we continue to look at this ninth proof, the fact that Jesus is the better Adam. And you'll remember that we've seen that Christ is our representative In his humiliation, exaltation, and substitution on our behalf, he is the better Adam. And we've seen in verses 10 to 15 so far, this great declaration that Christ's suffering was fitting back in verse 10. And since that time, we've been looking at reason after reason as to why it was right. Why was it appropriate for God the Father to crush the Son in suffering to bring us to glory? We've seen the first reason in verses 11 to 13 that we are a spiritual family, that we are those who are sons and daughters of God. God is our Father, and we are brothers with the Lord Jesus Christ. And then last week we saw a second reason in verses 14 and 15, and that is through the suffering of the Son, 
He has freed us from slavery to Satan and death. We saw the provision of his perfect life as Jesus took on full humanity last week and then offered that humanity as a sacrifice. And then we saw these two great purposes for this provision of Christ, the defeat of Satan and the freedom of God's children from the fear of death. As believers, we no longer have to live under the tyranny of the fear of death because we know for certain that when we die, we will be immediately with Christ, as will those of our loved ones who are in Christ when they pass on. And we know that he will not leave us in that condition, but one day will return and will resurrect us so that we have new glorified bodies. But with all of that said, now coming to verse 16, the author gives us yet a third reason as to why it's fitting for the Father to save us through the suffering of the Son, and that is that through his suffering, he helps the redeemed. Verse 16, through his suffering, he helps the redeemed. Let's read our text together, Hebrews chapter 2. Let's read verses 10 to 17. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing, bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. We're going to begin by looking at verse 16, which is this third reason, he helps the redeemed. And the author begins there in verse 16 with these two words, for assuredly. The word for is a pattern for him. He uses either therefore or for throughout this entire section to show us when a new reason is coming. And so he's still talking along the same subject, subject matter, but, but here he adds the word assuredly. The word assuredly is a Greek word that assumes that the audience will agree with him. In fact, we could translate it this way. We could say, for, as you will certainly agree, and then he makes the point. He's expecting an affirmation. It's a truth that he's about to state that every single Christian should also affirm. And so what is this truth statement? We'll look back at the text. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Now let's break this into two halves. The first half of this verse deals with the fact that he does not give help to angels, the text says. 
Now, this brings us back to the, the subject matter of angels. In fact, you may have been wondering why I continue to say that we're studying this theme of Christ being superior to angels because we haven't talked about angels in weeks. It's because I knew that angels were coming here. And so he's, he's closing off this argument that he's been making now for a long time that Christ is superior to the angels. And this will be his last mention in this section of the overarching theme. So what does he mean here when he says, he, that is Jesus, does not give help to angels? Well, to do this, we have to go back and look at where we began in this section. Because I realize we've been here for several weeks and it's easy for us to miss the forest for the trees as we walk slowly through these passages. So let's go back and read verses 5 to 9 where we started this argument about angels. Verse 5, chapter 2, verse 5 says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we were speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you were concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You've put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone." Now, the big idea here, when we went through these verses, is the fact that in the beginning, when God created the, the, the universe and the world specifically, he did not delegate the, the rulership over the created world to angels, but to mankind. That's who he's talking about initially when he says, verse 5, he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. And he goes on to prove that he did subject creation to mankind, but of course, very quickly, mankind failed, right? Mankind sinned, and so the world was, was sent into this tailspin under the curse of God because of sin, and so Jesus Christ came as our representative, our second representative, the better Adam. That's what we've been talking about now for several weeks. He was humiliated or he humbled himself by taking on humanity but then exalted because of his death on the cross and resurrection. This concept then ties in directly with the verse that we are coming to this morning in verse 16. The author still has this larger argument in mind when he makes this new statement about Jesus Christ not giving help to angels. This word help is a very interesting Greek word. In fact, there's some controversy if you read commentaries on this. They go back and forth about how to translate this word because it doesn't normally mean to help. In fact, usually it's defined as to grasp or to seize or to lay firm hold of. But in context, the idea here is that... that The Son, Jesus Christ, does not reach out to take hold of angels in the sense of to render them aid. Think of it this way. Think of a person dangling on the edge of a cliff. They're holding on for for dear life. 
and somebody comes by and reaches down and takes hold of them with a firm grip and pulls them to safety. That's the idea of this Greek word, gives help. He takes hold of them, he seizes them, and rescues them. Jesus does not do that, the author says, for angels. But that brings us to the second half of the verse. Who does the Son of God offer this help to? Who does he grab hold of and rescue? But he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Now, as we think about the larger context here, we just read verses 5 through 9 in this contrast between mankind and angels. We might expect him to say that God does not give help to angels, but he gives help to mankind. But that's not what he says. Who does he say that the son gives this help to? The descendant of Abraham. He narrows it down to one specific group of people. Now, I say group because that word descendant there is literally the word for seed. Uh, It it is singular here, but it's not uncommon in Greek to use the word seed uh, in a singular form, but to refer to a group. In fact, in the parable of the sower, when the sower is casting seed, it's actually singular there, but we all understand he's not throwing one seed, but many Seeds. That's the idea here. We could say the offspring of Abraham would be another way to translate it. I think the ESV translates it that way. And so it is singular in form, but it's plural in meaning. It's the idea. Now when we read that, that Jesus gives help not to angels, but to the descendant of Abraham, we might be tempted initially to think, well, he must be talking about the Jews, right? When you think about the, the offspring or the seed of Abraham, our mind turns to the Jewish people. But actually, I don't think that's correct. I think that that he's getting to the heart of a matter that the Apostle Paul makes very, very clear that I think is in the mind of the author here when he talks about the descendant of Abraham. So who are these people? If it's not uh, one person, singular, and if it's not the Jewish people specifically, who are we talking about? Well, as is often the case in Hebrews, we have to get some Old Testament background here if we're going to know what we're talking about. So we're going to look at a couple of passages dealing with Abraham. You remember, first of all, that Abrahamic covenant, a monumental moment not only in the life of of Abraham or the people of Israel, but of the whole world. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now it's interesting here. Because God does not simply promise to Abram that he's going to bring a nation from him. He does promise that. But that in Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How is that? How is it that both Jew and Gentile will be blessed through this covenant made with Abraham? It is because through the bloodline of Abraham would come not only the Jewish nation, but the very Son of God, the Messiah who would then die as a sacrifice for all who would come to him in repentance and faith. So this is a a worldwide blessing in the sense that every nation, every group of people would have access to this wonderful Messiah who would come through the bloodline of 
Abraham. But just a couple of chapters later in Genesis, God comes back to Abram and reaffirms this covenant and something monumental happens. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I'm childless? And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Verse 6. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Now, this is incredible. What that verse says there in verse 6 is that Abraham believed the promise of God, and in response to that faith, simply the faith, he was reckoned righteousness. Righteousness literally was credited to Abraham by God based on his faith. Now the Apostle Paul seizes on this verse in Galatians chapter 3, and he helps us understand the meaning of this phrase, the descendant of Abraham. Who are these people? Galatians chapter 3, verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He's quoting from Genesis 15, verse 6. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now this explanation helps fill in our phrase here in Hebrews. I believe that this is in the mind of the author as he writes this fact that it is these descendants of Abraham that Christ gives his help to. He's not talking about only the Jewish people, but any person, Jew or Gentile, who believes the promise of God, believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, to that person, righteousness will be credited, and they then will be a child of Abraham, not necessarily by blood, but by faith, uniting in the faith of Abraham. That's the point here. Jesus does not give his help of salvation to angels, but instead he gives help of salvation to all who, like Abraham, put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the promise of God. And so, tying this together, it was fitting for the Father to bring us to glory through the suffering of the Son, because by his suffering, he was extending to us rescue and help that we so desperately needed. He reached down and took hold of us to rescue us from our sin. Christian, just think on that for a moment. There you were, before you were in Christ, dead in your sins, hopeless, incapable of rescuing yourself from the wrath of God, from the guilt brought by your sins. And Jesus, in his mercy and grace, reached down and took hold of you through the preaching of the gospel, 
you heard the gospel and you really heard it. You really saw who Jesus was and what your sins were before him. And you were crushed to the core and ran to him in repentance and faith. That's what he's talking about here. Jesus Christ grabs a hold of us. He reaches down. He rescues us. This is the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian today, that's what he's done for you. He's not done that for any other created beings. Angels don't have that help. They don't have hope of rescue. Many of them are sinners. Many of them too have rebelled against their holy God. But he does not send a savior for them. But for us, mankind, he sent the help that we needed in the person of Jesus Christ. Don't ever get over that. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What a savior. What a savior. But now having explained this third reason, he turns to a fourth. A fourth reason that it was fitting. This is in verse 17. Verse 17 actually serves as a bridge between what we've been studying and what's about to come. In this one little verse, he's going to summarize the key truths that we've learned together and then introduce the key theme or topic of the verses that follow. Let's look together again at verse 17. This is reason number four. He made priestly propitiation. He made priestly propitiation. Verse 17, therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Here again, he introduces this next reason with the word therefore, as he has in the past, because he gives this help to the descendants of Abraham, he had to be made like his brethren in all things. Now, if you weren't with us last week, I encourage you to go back and listen to that message because I outlined in detail the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and how that was uh, him taking on complete and true human flesh and a human nature. Uh, He was everything that we are apart from sin. We went went through that in detail last week, so I'm not going to do that this week because we just did that, but I do want to draw your attention to a couple of things. First of all, notice the word brethren or brothers, he draws our attention back to this idea again. We're adopted sons of God and brothers of Christ. And then in reiterating this idea of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, the necessity of the incarnation, he says he had to become like us. He had to be like us. To be our help, to reach down and take hold of the descendants of Abraham, he had to be made like us. And he adds the phrase, in all things. In all things. Now compare this with verse 14 that we studied last week. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. When we put these two verses together, and all of the descriptions that it gives of the incarnation of Jesus, we come away with all of these words. The word likewise, also, partook of the same, became like us, In all things. 
In addition to that, later in chapter 4, verse 15, he will say that, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. And so with that important caveat that Christ had no sin, but in every other way, how much more clearly could the author state the fact that Jesus became truly and completely man? He was a real human being. And he had to do it to rescue us. Now last week, we looked at two specific purposes of the incarnation, right? Two reasons that Jesus had to be incarnate. Last week, we saw the defeat of Satan and the freedom of God's children, specifically from the fear of death. But now he's going to give us another purpose Now that he's reiterated the same point that Jesus had to be man, he says, so that, verse 17, so that a new purpose is coming. And this one is multifaceted. Honestly, we could camp here for months and just talk about this one verse. But we're not going to do that because he's going to expound upon these themes as we work our way through the rest of Hebrews. And so he's really going to give us one purpose But we're going to break it into two parts because he handles it in two sections. We're going to see that the incarnation allowed Jesus to be someone on our behalf and to do something on our behalf. Through the incarnation, it allowed Jesus to be someone on our behalf and to do something on our behalf. The author first begins with who it is that Christ was able to be On our behalf. The first purpose of the incarnation here is that he served as our high priest. He served as our high priest. Look back at verse 17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. Now, I have to warn you, hopefully, excite you about the truth that we're probably going to be looking at the priesthood of Jesus Christ for two to three years. Um, That's because he's introducing this idea here. Remember, I told you verse 17 launches us into what's coming. And if you've read Hebrews, what's coming is an extensive discussion. In fact, the most extensive discussion about the priesthood of Jesus Christ in all of Scripture. He's going to come back to it over and over again. So we're literally going to turn over every rock that we can find dealing with the high priesthood of Jesus Christ over the next months, honestly, years. So I'm not going to try to do all of that today. All right, this is the, this is the first instance of, of this uh, title, high priest, given to Jesus Christ. And so bear with me um, when I leave things out and you're saying, oh, why didn't you bring that up? We're, we're going to get there. But... The point of bringing this up here in verse 17 is actually not to focus on the priesthood of Christ yet, but on what he accomplished as our high priest. That's the primary point here in verse 17, and so we're going to talk about that primarily. But I do have to give you a little bit of background about what it means that he is our high priest. First of all, notice that it doesn't say that Jesus became our faithful priest. It says, specifically, high priest priest. That's important. You may recall from your Old Testament, the priesthood was inaugurated officially under the leadership of Moses as the people are led out of Egypt into the wilderness and Moses receives the law, the first five books of the Bible. And through that, there's this institution of a priesthood. 
In fact, the whole tribe of Levi is set apart to serve in this special role of the priesthood to God. They were to lead the people in worship through song and playing instruments. They were to, to be teaching the scripture. They were involved in all of the sacrificial system and the, everything that had to take place. They were even involved in, in, in caring for the, the items that were used in worship and moving those as the people of God moved around the, the wilderness. All of those things were delegated to the, the tribe of Levi. But not all the Levites had the privilege of being high priests. This was given to one family, one specific family, the brother of Moses, Aaron. Aaron was the first high priest, and the high priesthood was to be passed down by blood. It was only to be given to those who were the direct descendants of Aaron. And once a high priest came into that position, he served for life. It was a lifelong service. And the high priest was was given the special role and privilege of of doing several unique things, but there was one chief thing that the high priest was able to do every year that no other Levite was ever allowed to do. No other person was ever allowed to do. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest had the responsibility and the privilege of going not just into the holy place, but into the holiest of holy places. The closest place on earth at that time that a person symbolically could get to the actual presence of God. That high priest, once a year, on the Day of Atonement, would take a blood offering into that most holy place. And he would offer that as atonement for his sins and for the sins of the people. He stood as a representative for the entire nation of people. One time... A year. That was his chief unique role among others. The point then in Hebrews of saying that Jesus became our high priest is to talk again about the special way that Jesus became our representative. Jesus went into the real presence of God, not just as a high priest, but as a merciful and faithful high priest. Jesus Christ was our high priest in a way that no other human priest could ever even imagine being. And in becoming our high priest, he showed great mercy towards us. Because unlike those other high priests, Jesus had no need to offer sacrifice for his own sins. The only purpose for Jesus becoming our high priest was for our benefit. Therefore, he is a merciful high priest. Not to mention he was a faithful high priest. That is, he did everything to the letter, exactly as the scriptures would have him do, exactly according to the will of God. He was faithful down to the last moment, and he continues to be faithful even still. But again, all of this really serves as a backdrop to tell us about one magnificent action that Jesus undertook as our high priest. And that's the second purpose here. He made propitiation for our sins. He made propitiation for our sins. Looking back at verse 17. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. To make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now the importance of this statement truly cannot be overstated. 
There is a tendency in broader evangelicalism to downplay or minimize the use of theological terms. We're told that it would be far better if we just dumbed everything down to a middle school level and just make sure everyone understands. The problem with that position is that there are certain key theological terms that every Christian must know. And the word propitiation is at the top of that list. There is no other word in the English language. There's no other easier to understand word that I can say that means what propitiation means. It's a very unique word. We have to use the word propitiation when we're talking about the concept it describes. So let me first begin by giving you a definition of this word that you as a Christian must understand. Here's what propitiation means. It's the appeasement or turning away of God's wrath against sinners by means of an atoning sacrifice. When you think of propitiation, think about wrath and think about satisfaction. The wrath of God satisfied in easy terms is what propitiation means. Propitiation highlights the truth that what every human being needs is not simply to have their sins removed from them. They need that. But what they need in addition to that is to have God's wrath towards them completely satisfied. You see, there are some who want to substitute a different word for propitiation. It's another Asian word. It's the word expiation. We have propitiation. We have expiation. Now, if you're tempted to check out because of these big Asian words, just hang with me because this is really important and you don't want to check out right now. Here's the difference between these two important words. David Allen says, the difference between expiation... And propitiation is that expiation signifies the cancellation of sin, whereas propitiation denotes the turning away of the wrath of God. Basically, in in easy terms, expiation just deals with the cancellation of sin, the removal of sin, but it doesn't deal with God's wrath. People want to use that word instead of propitiation because the idea of God's wrath offends them. They don't want to think of God as wrathful against us. The only problem is the Bible tells us over and over that that's exactly what God is. That's his just response to our sin. And so we don't need to just have our sins canceled. We need to have the wrath of God satisfied. We need propitiation, which includes expiation, but it goes further. It doesn't just mean the canceling of our sin. It means the satisfaction of the wrath of God. Think about it this way. Picture with me a situation in which a thief has broken into Buckingham Palace and has stolen precious jewels from the Queen of England. The thief briefly manages to escape the grasp of the security guards, but just as he's about to make it out of the palace complex, he is apprehended, tackled, and arrested. The jewels are immediately removed from his satchel and brought back to the Queen of England. Not one of them is missing. All of them have been returned. So, Is that man free to go on his merry way? All the jewels have been returned. No harm, no foul. The queen has her jewels. Nobody was hurt. Yet we all understand that it would not be just to simply say, okay, you can go. All the jewels are back. Everything's put back the way it should be. And yet we have this this 
innate understanding that that's not right. There's been a breach of justice. There's been a breach of justice here, and it must be punished. This man has incurred the wrath, in this case, of the legal code of England. He's broken the law, and the law outlines what the wrath in that case will be for this man, what the punishment will be, and he will get that punishment if the judge is just. He will go to trial, he will stand before the judge, and he will receive the wrath of the laws of the land of England. In the same way, Jesus did not simply remove your sins. He didn't just bring back the jewels and sort of lay everything back at a clean slate because that wouldn't have done there still would have been this issue of wrath. The justice has not yet been served. And so what Jesus did on the cross is, yes, he put everything back. He wiped your slate clean, so to speak, but he did far more. He gave you his righteousness, and he took upon himself your sin and the wrath of God that you deserve for that sin. He took it all. It was physically poured out upon him by the Father on the cross. You see... Propitiation teaches us this crucial biblical truth. We have broken the divine law of God, thereby incurring the guilt and wrath of God, and Jesus took it all for every single one of God's adopted sons and daughters. You see, the nature of God demands that he act always in a way that's in accordance with perfect, perfect justice. Just as it would have been wrong to let the jewel thief go free even though the jewels are returned, so the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, must pay not only for the guilt of our sin but the wrath deserved for our sin. Listen to the way that Paul explains this in Romans chapter 3. This is one of my favorite passages. Romans 3 verses 21 to 26. It says, But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, listen to this, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Stop right there for a moment. That that phrase, just and the justifier, is such a key phrase. Understand this wonderful mystery that happened on the cross. It really is a conundrum. Our sin is a major conundrum. How is it that God can show us grace and mercy, which are parts of his character, and yet also give us justice and wrath, which are equally parts of his character? How can he do both of those things at the same time? They seem to us to be in contradiction, but they're not. God solves that problem in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, because on the cross, something happened that we call double imputation. What I mean by that is that simultaneously God takes the the sin of the, the repentant sinner and he places that on Jesus Christ so that he suffers all of the penalty and the wrath for that sin. 
But at the same time, he takes the righteousness, the perfect righteousness that Jesus earned by his perfect life, and he takes that and he credits that to the sinner. Double imputation. Our sin imputed, credited to Christ. His righteousness credited, imputed to us. Double imputation, which means that God can be just because every sin is truly punished. He doesn't just say, okay, you're forgiven. Just kind of let it go. He doesn't say that. Every sin will be punished in one of two ways. Either by the sinner in hell forever. That's the truth. Or by Jesus Christ taking the punishment for that sin. But every sin is truly, legitimately punished, and so God is just, yet he's also the justifier, the one who declares righteous, because he gives us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Wow. I hope you're thinking differently about theological terms. This is why the word propitiation matters so much. So much of the gospel is crammed into that one word, what Jesus did for us. In summary, the author of Hebrews is saying to us that Jesus Christ gives help to the descendants of Abraham by faith by taking on real humanity so that he could represent us as a high priest and make atonement with his own blood to perfectly satisfy God's wrath for us. That's what he's saying. Through Christ, our sins have not only been removed, our debt has not only been paid, the wrath of God has been completely poured out and satisfied. We began this morning by asking the question, how can mankind ever hope to satisfy the justice of God? And now we see the fullness of the glorious answer given to us by God himself. Though we were incapable of such a feat, Jesus Christ, the perfect son of God, has satisfied the wrath of God. He took the cup of wrath and he drank it to the last drop. This is the gospel. This is why we work hard at understanding theology and theological terms. It's because it brings the picture of redemption into clear focus. This salvation is so great, it deserves careful enunciation and precision. It deserves our brains sweating to understand these things that it was fitting for the Father to crush the Son to bring us to glory. Listen, these things call for a response. They call for a response, first of all, to trust in the propitiation of Christ. Trust in the propitiation of Christ. The authors made it clear that this, this help, this rescue that the Son brings, does not come to all people universally. It comes to those who are descendants of Abraham by faith. Those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope. The Bible reveals that every single one of us is a sinner. Because of that, we've incurred the guilt for our sin, the wrath of God. The truth is, if you're not in Christ this morning, even though you may refuse to admit it or seek to cover it with a smile or a joke, you know in your heart of hearts that you are a sinner that you deserve the wrath of God. What mankind often does instinctively when he feels guilt for his sin is he responds in one of two ways. He either suppresses it, like, like taking a, a beach ball and trying to hold it under the water in the pool. You ever done that? 
try to stand on it and it keeps popping back up. That's what, that's what people are doing all the time. They take that guilt of sin, they just, it's not there. And it pops back up, oh, oh, it's not there. And this, that's how they're, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, as Romans 1 says. Or he tries to make up for it by being really, really good. Either suppress it or try to make up for it. i got to bring the jewels back. Here you go. I know I stole these, but here you go. They're all back. Everything is, is good to go. But here's the truth. Two things. One, you can't actually give the jewels back. You don't even have that ability. Secondly, even if you could, even if you could sort of set everything right and start over with a clean slate, you still have this issue of wrath. Justice has to be served. And there's no amount of goodness, no amount of fresh self-righteous deeds that you can offer to God. That wrath is still there. The Bible says there's only one way for this conundrum to be solved. It's on the cross of Jesus Christ. Won't you come this morning? Put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the promise of God as Abraham did thousands of years ago, as so many believers have done, they see their sin, and they see the only solution is the Lord Jesus Christ. If you would be willing to repent of your sins, humble yourself, repent of your sins, look to Jesus and not yourself, and recognize he is my only hope. Only by his sacrificial death and resurrection can I be saved. Then, friend, you will be saved by faith. Don't waste another opportunity to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, if you're a believer this morning, rejoice in the propitiation of Christ. If, if you're a believer, these truths should cause your heart to, to burst with joy and worship, to sing with freedom and joy to the Lord of what he's done. It should propel you to live a, a life of joyful obedience, not driven by fear or legalism, but of, out of love for what he's accomplished for us. It should cause us to long for heaven, but to long for heaven with assurance that when we arrive there, we will receive not the frowning face of a judge, but the smiling face of a father, because the wrath is gone. It should change the way we share the gospel. Listen, hell is real. Justice will be served for every sin. We have the joyous privilege, the privilege of declaring to friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, acquaintances the good news of Jesus Christ that yes, wrath is real. Yes, it hovers over you like a storm and you will be destroyed unless you see the good news in Jesus Christ simply by faith in him. If you would turn from your sin, placing your faith in Christ, you can be saved. May we never water down the gospel and tell people they need to come to Jesus to have a happier life. May we tell them that truth, you need to come to Jesus because you're a sinner that deserves his wrath. But, oh, friend, he's made provision for that in his perfect son. No wonder that Paul would say to the Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. May we rejoice in the gospel for ourselves, and may we proclaim it to anyone who will listen to 